Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel by D.G. Ranton. Chapter 16. Lost in her furious thoughts, April entered the elegant parlour that Mrs. Jameson had set aside for the use of her female guests and did not immediately notice the only other occupant of the room. Miss Hartwood? Oh, Miss Starling, there you are, April greeted her, offering her a warm smile. The least she could do was to be kind to this poor girl whose lot in life was to be saddled with the termagant of a man. Were you looking for me? asked Miss Starling, turning from the mirror where she had been rearranging her curls. Yes, your fiancé sent me to find you, replied April, then belatedly remembered she had been misled. Miss Starling stiffened. May I ask why? There were any number of reasons April could have given that would have painted an unfavourable picture of Hugh. But, although she was sorely tempted to pay him back for his insolence, she did not have it in her to be malicious. There was nothing wrong, however, in having a little fun at his expense and casting him in the role of the besotted lover. He wanted me to tell you that he misses you terribly and hopes you will return to him with all speed. Miss Starling's pretty features were marred by an unmistakable grimace. Do you not want Mr. Royce to miss you? asked April, unable to keep the surprise from her voice. I have been barely gone ten minutes, Miss Starling retorted, her well-cultivated amiability perilously close to shattering. Perhaps it is longer than you think, April suggested, without quite knowing why she felt the need to justify Hugh's fictitious actions. Even so, it is not possible for him to miss me. At least, not unless... Oh, it does not bear thinking about. I certainly never gave him any cause to think I was that type of woman. And after all he told me of disliking excesses of emotion and agreeing with me that ours would be a marriage based on respect, I never would have thought he would succumb to such a vulgar emotion. I have been greatly deceived. To what vulgar emotion are you referring? asked April seriously intrigued by the nature of their relationship. Before Miss Starling could reply, a tap on the door claimed their attention. For goodness sake, not now, April grumbled under her breath. Striding to the door, she threw it open. You're Scotch, miss, said the footman from earlier. He lifted his tray a little higher to draw attention to the heavy-bottomed crystal glass that rested on it. Oh, of course, thank you. I appreciate your promptness. She picked up the glass and shut the door on the worshipful look that was beginning to bloom in his eyes. Is that strong liquor? asked Miss Starling, watching with fascination as April took a sip. Whiskey, actually. My grandmother taught me to enjoy it. I find it wonderfully restorative on occasion. My mother does not approve of ladies drinking anything stronger than champagne, put in Miss Starling. Then she's fortunate I am not her daughter, April returned. I do feel as if I could use a restorative, said Miss Starling. Would it be wrong of me to try some, Miss Hartwood? April's hand hovered uncertainly for a moment before she offered up the glass, a noble gesture of sacrifice that was lost on her companion, who proceeded to take a generous gulp without preamble or appreciation. April felt safe in assuming, from the contortions of Miss Starling's features, that she found the whisky unpalatable although this in no way deterred her from stiffening her resolve and downing the remainder. That was vile, she exclaimed. It's fortunate you did not enjoy it, April said indignantly. 
Oblivious to her companion's displeasure, Miss Starling put down the glass and returned to the subject uppermost in her thoughts. Oh, how mortifying it is to find oneself in the position one was at great pains to avoid. I take it you refer to Mr. Royce, said April, regarding her with a decided lack of sympathy. Her earlier goodwill was somewhat dented, and she wished for nothing more than to bring about an end to their tete-a-tete as quickly as possible. Besides, the relationship between Hugh and Miss Starling was no concern of hers. Of course, Mr. Royce, who else? replied Miss Starling. Now was the point at which she should simply turn the subject, April told herself. A well-mannered lady would resist the temptation to prod. Because he is displaying some vulgar emotion, she prompted, despising her own weakness. Exactly, said Miss Starling. Mr. Royce has fallen in love with me. A stab of pain pierced April's breast. Then she came to her senses and recollected that she was yet to see Hugh act like a man in love. But surely you want your husband to love you, she asked. A pleasant, fiery glow had settled within Miss Starling, softening her hard edges, and, without quite knowing why, she confided, I suppose it's possible that our mutual respect may one day grow into something warmer, though, of course, I do not expect it. But that is entirely different to him being in love with me now. I am no doxy. Come, let us sit down, and you can explain why you believe a husband and wife should not be in love said April, a little wryly. I admit this is a philosophy that is new to me. Once they were seated on a pretty rose velvet couch, Miss Starling launched into a warbled monologue on the goals of marriage, which, according to the precepts her mother had taught her, centred on performing one's duty, the most noble gratification of all, nurturing the flame of mutual respect, difficult but not impossible if a wife donned the armour of a proper mindset, and siring children, a rather unpleasant business, but one that was linked to duty and therefore both unavoidable and noble. The concept of love was summarily dismissed by Miss Starling as nothing more than a sordid emotion based on lust. It was, she said, what men felt for their numerous mistresses, and a lady had to learn to accept it without betraying that she was aware of its existence. When at last these rather peculiar confidences were at an end, Miss Starling dabbed her eyes with her handkerchief and wailed, Can Mr. Royce have so little respect for me that he believes himself in love with me? April suppressed an ignoble wish to bring about the end of Miss Starling's betrothal by agreeing with her. It was, after all, not the poor girl's fault that her head had been filled with some rather silly notions. "'What your mother has told you is not entirely correct,' she said matter-of-factly. "'Naturally, I can't know her reasons, but it sounds to me that she may have experienced some disillusionment in her own marriage, and perhaps has found it easier to lower her expectations than to face disappointment.' Miss Starling put down her handkerchief, her expression arrested. She might have been kept ignorant of certain matters owing to her sex. Nonetheless, her mental faculties were no more diminished by her gender than a man's faculties were diminished by his. Actually, that does make some sense, she admitted. When my father was alive, I couldn't help but be aware that he kept several... There's no need to divulge anything of that nature, April said quickly, recoiling from hearing any intimacies to do with Miss Starling's family. 
I only wish you to know that I have observed successful unions between men and women that were based on a deep romantic love. And although it is true that many men enjoy the affections of women outside of wedlock, this does not preclude them from falling in love with the women they will one day marry. And neither does it preclude this love from being noble and respectful. Mother says that love is for the lower classes, persevered Miss Starling, although with less certainty. A true lady does not look for such things in marriage. Poppycock, exclaimed April, heartily sick of the opinions of the absent Mrs. Starling. Your mother has picked up some very strange notions. Certainly in the past, women of our station were often forced into marriages in which love played no part. But we now live in more enlightened times. In the year 1820, we need not fear such a fate for ourselves. I don't doubt you need never fear such a fate. Miss Starling said, a little wistfully. It is true, my disposition would never allow me to accept a husband not of my own choosing, said April, consoling her conscience with the thought that her current predicament was entirely different. She was not accepting a husband, but a temporary fiancé. However, you too need have no such fear, Miss Starling. Mr. Royce appears to be all that is... She waved a hand in the air as she attempted to find a complimentary word to describe someone she found infuriating. Amiable? Miss Starling suggested helpfully. Why, yes, if you wish. A rather comical look of liquor-induced concentration descended over Miss Starling's features. He is amiable, at least towards me. I know that is not always the case with others. Surely that is to his credit, said April. A man who shows so little discrimination as to be universally amiable would be excessively tiresome. One would never know if one was esteemed for their own worth or because of his lack of discernment. Yes, how true, replied Miss Starling, swaying a little and rubbing her eyes as if to clear them. Miss Hartwood, I confess I feel a little strange. April rose immediately and went to pour out two glasses of water from a jug that had been left out for the guests. Returning to her inebriated companion, she instructed her to drink both. Miss Starling complied without complaint. When she was finished, she continued as if no interruption had occurred. But although he is amiable, one cannot deny that his appearance is brutish, and he makes no attempt to soften what nature has given him, either through manners or dress. He is so careless with both, it makes one wonder if he has any respect for all that he owes his station. April decided this uncomplimentary assessment of Hugh must be another transplanted opinion from Mrs. Starling, for it was beyond her comprehension how any young woman could be blind to his many personal attractions. She herself had tried a number of times to dismiss them and found the task insurmountable. Mr. Royce's appearance is exactly as it should be. That of a gentleman, she said indignantly. But if his person disgusts you to such a degree, then you should have refused his proposal. But how can one refuse such a fortune and one day a title? Mother was quite insistent. The door suddenly swung open to admit two laughing matrons and Miss Starling's words died on her lips. The interruption served to clear the fog a little from her mind and she threw April a furtive look fearful that she had betrayed herself. April did her best to hide her anger, but it could not be fully contained, and, as she rose to her feet, 
she yanked Miss Starling along with her, causing her to yelp in surprise. It is time we returned downstairs, April said with forced affability, keeping a firm hold on her arm. Ouch, you're hurting me, Miss Starling complained under her breath. Exchanging polite smiles with the two ladies, April propelled Miss Starling out of the room. Once the door had closed behind them, she let go of her arm. I beg your pardon, I am told I have a very strong grip, she said dispassionately, and walked off. Miss Starling threw an accusing look at her back and then followed her. The two glasses of water she had consumed were starting to have a positive effect, and with this return of clarity came the mortifying consciousness that she had revealed a great deal more information than was prudent. Miss Hartwood, she spoke hesitantly, breaking the silence that had descended as they made their way down the stairs. I trust you will pay no attention to my ramblings. I was not myself and may have expressed myself in terms that were not what they should have been. Having already reached the conclusion that Miss Starling was not unusual in thinking only of worldly considerations when it came to marriage, April's anger had mostly dissipated, and now, in light of the girl's evident distress, it vanished entirely. There is no need to say any more on the subject, she replied. You may not know this about me, but I despise telltales. Miss Starling had the grace to look ashamed. Thank you, she murmured. Think nothing of it. We cannot allow the gentlemen to claim the bonds of honour for themselves alone. Are you quite recovered, or shall we rest a while longer in the corridor? No, cried Miss Starling. I, I mean, I am perfectly recovered, thank you. April resisted an urge to laugh. Miss Starling clearly had no wish to continue alone in her company. On entering the brightly lit salons, which held an even greater number of guests than before, April's eyes were immediately drawn to Hugh, in conversation with a group of men a few feet away. When his acquaintances began to look in her direction, he turned as well and met her gaze, before transferring his attention to his fiancée. April had the dubious pleasure of realising their talk had had some positive effect on Miss Starling, for she offered Hugh a coquettish smile few men would have failed to find charming. April saw the moment Hugh was struck by it, a fleeting expression about the eyes that she would have missed had she not been watching him closely. "'Thank you for your message, Mr Royce,' said Miss Starling when he came to stand by her side. A momentary stillness was all that gave away his surprise. Then he turned to April and raised a sardonic eyebrow. "'Dare I ask what message?' "'Why, that you were missing Miss Starling and awaiting her return,' replied April with wide-eyed innocence. "'Ah, that message.' The look he gave her managed to convey a promise of retribution. "'I am, of course, happy to have you back, my dear,' he told his fiancée. His cavalier delivery, at odds with the ardent message he was supposed to have sent, went unnoticed by Miss Starling. Her attention was fixed on a spot beyond his shoulder— and, a moment later, the Duke of Clarendon and Mr Kepling joined their group. Miss Hartwood, began his grace, when you re-entered the room, it was as if a breath of sweetly scented air swept aside the staleness that had settled upon us. Even with only an hour's knowledge of the Duke's character, April had surmised that he was an admirer of the poetic turn of phrase, which was not a quality Hugh appeared to value. She could feel the derision emanating from him. She would have preferred the Duke to direct his eloquence elsewhere, but, 
feeling a need to counter Hugh's scorn. She said, Thank you, Your Grace. I do so enjoy alliteration in a compliment. Are you and Mr. Kepling already acquainted with Miss Starling and Mr. Royce? I have not had the pleasure, replied His Grace. He exchanged nods with Hugh and offered Miss Starling his extravagant bow. Your servant, ma'am. Honoured by such elevated notice, Miss Starling sunk into a deep curtsy from which she did not appear to wish to rise, a circumstance that made April so inexplicably annoyed that she was tempted to pour the silly girl to her feet. She stole a glance at Hugh. He did not appear to have noticed his fiancée's excessive subservience, for his gaze was resting on her, his expression inscrutable. She questioned him silently with her eyes until he looked away. Miss Starling rose at last of her own accord and allowed herself to be introduced to Mr Kepling. It could not be said that either one of them took much notice of the other. Miss Starling's gaze kept flitting over to the Duke, while Mr Kepling offered her a vague smile and promptly returned his attention to April. When the musicians in the adjoining room began to play a waltz, soon after, April was only too happy to accept the Duke's invitation to dance and escape the immoderate looks being cast about. Not to be outdone, Miss Starling smiled sweetly up at Hugh and informed him that she would be pleased to have the opportunity to dance to a piece of music that was a particular favourite of hers, and, linking her arm through his, gently propelled him to follow his grace and April. End of chapter 16